0: be with them. Lord, we love you. Amen. Thanks, Colton. Thanks, man. Well, good morning. morning. It's good to be with you all. Thanks for coming to worship with us on this Memorial Day weekend. Um, This beginning of summer in more ways than one, it's the beginning of… this last week began uh, Pastor Brian's sabbatical, so you'll see my face and hear my voice a few more times this summer, but you'll also praise God, see some other faces, and hear some other voices as well. So I'm looking forward to that. But it's so good to be with y'all here this morning uh, preach God's Word. I hope um, that by the end of it you will uh, see what I believe John wants us to see clearly in this uh, and respond well that we would know God, we would know His Christ. But I want to start off by saying uh, by way of illustration a bit just to get you to think about. We're still very much in the era of superhero movies. I know Little Mermaid came out this weekend, but superhero movies are still coming uh, fast and quick. I think I looked at it this week. I think the, the biggest year was like 2019. We had 10 major multi, multi-million dollar big budget superhero movies. There's tons of them. There's so many. It's wild. And so I want to imagine the next one comes out, and you go to, go to see it. You're so excited, and you get your whole family or, or, or whatever to go see it, and you drop all the money to, to sit in the theater. And it's the typical superhero Genesis story, right? There's, there's this sort of person that's given a special power, and maybe there's a mentor figure that's going to teach them how to use it or what to do with it. Uh, and I want you to just put yourself in that position. Think about what power are you going to be excited about seeing in this movie? What superhero really – was it like Spider-Man like, swinging from building to building or Superman flying around or something like that? Some guy like Iron Man who has a lot of like technology – what, what power do you get excited about seeing? I want you to imagine you sit in this movie, and whoever this hero is sits down with his mentor, and the mentor says, I want you to save the world, or whatever, because the mentor always has, like, a deep voice, and he always dies, like, at the end of Act One. It's just kind of how the story goes. Um, but, but he says, okay, this is your mission. You, I want you to save the world, or whatever the theme is there, but that's the idea. And I, I want you to, to imagine that you've dropped all this money for this three-hour movie, and you find out that the superhero's special power is teaching. I know, right? Like, really exciting. So this average dude goes and sits down with a small crowd of people and spends the next three hours teaching. Right? I mean, if you're like me, you're going to feel a little bit like, I don't know, like, the CGI wasn't very good in this one. (laughs) Wasn't very exciting. Not much had happened right? I mean, that just goes against our sensibilities. We want to see big action. We want to see the world saved in demonstrable ways. Even if half of New York gets destroyed in the process, we want to see the bad guys defeated. We want to see the good guys win, and we want to see it done through special, unique powers. Uh, We just talked last week, right, about Jesus going on mission. He was sent in God's timing, in God's power, in God's way, on mission, And so I think if you're like me and you arrive at this text, there's a part of our own human flesh that when you read verse 14 about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. (laughs) Teaching. I I don't know that I would say teaching is the primary in in terms of ultimately what we look to, what the mission of God is in Christ. We see ultimately that, that Jesus will go and die on the cross for the sins of his people he will save his people truly through the cross and through the resurrection but his whole life was bent on that mission and his ministry was marked by teaching it's marked by teaching and so we want to stop and pause and consider what happens when Jesus teaches what is he teaching and how do the people respond and how does that how does that get our brains into the mind of John, I believe, but also even the Holy Spirit working in the, the text of God's Word to see w- w- what do we really need to be saved from, how are we going to be saved, and how is teaching even involved in that at all? I think that's a major part of this passage that we're going to unfold. And, and Specifically, in this text, you're going to see, I think, that Jesus is focusing on the fact that He and His teaching is sent from God. That's the simple title for this morning. That's just the title that kind of describes what we're looking at. Brian has been uh, teaching us well through John, though, to look at key sentences, core ideas that this whole text kind of hangs on as a thesis statement, and so I've got one of those for you as well. And beyond sent from God, I, I want you to really see this in this text, that Jesus is teaching I think, this core truth. He wants us to know God and His teaching through faith in His Christ. There's no other hope that Jesus seems to have in this passage than to ultimately point out, as you heard read, that the Jews don't know God. But He has come as God, with God's teaching, so that through faith in Him, people would really know the true and living God. And again, that may not sound exciting to you on the surface level, but I want you to think about the scope of your life. And it's been said many times before, and it'll be said times after, that really knowing and being known is core to who we are as people. We we are a people who are desperate to be known. And to be known by others, to be truly known, to be truly loved. But God, as the one who made us, has sent His Son Jesus to teach the way that we might truly know Him, the way that we truly might be known by Him and grow in Him. So that's what we're going to see this morning, I hope, is that we would know God and His teaching through faith in His Christ. I already mentioned last week we we saw the pressures that Jesus faced when He was going on mission. His own brothers didn't believe in Him, right? They wanted Him to be, in verse 4, if you've seen that chapter, known openly. Keep that in mind. Uh, They want Him to be known openly, but how? Well, by, you know, showing yourself in these works, by going down to this feast that Brian mentioned last week, the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. Go make yourself widely known through signs, miracles, wonders, whatever works you wanna do, Jesus, if you're really so powerful. And at the end of verse four, if you do these things, show yourself to the world, right? That's their method of how the world might be saved, at least, in, in, if, if that's not just fully sarcasm, because verse five says that they didn't even believe in him. Um, so, but Jesus is not motivated by those pressures. He goes up in his own timing, in his own way, Uh, And in verse 14, like I just mentioned, it says that He went up to the temple in about the middle of the feast. Uh, This is a seven-day feast, so uh, three, four days in, something like that during the Feast of Booths when uh, the Jews have made this pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship God, uh, Jesus has gone up as well. Uh, Just a reminder, this this is a feast to celebrate that God was with His people. If, even in the wilderness, even when they were wandering, even when they were between Egypt and the Promised Land, God was with His people. They, uh, well, even as they traveled and, and they were in temporary dwellings, even more than that God was in the tabernacle; His presence was there, traveling with them. He led them by a pillar of fire at night, and a pillar of cloud of day. Uh, all these things that we see in the Old Testament. So they're remembering this at this feast. It comes during the time of harvest, big celebration. Lots to be thankful for, and there's lots of teachers around, right? That'll be important to understand. There's a lot of rabbis who have taken their their favorite corners and spots in the temple, and they're teaching the people. And Jesus, um, he goes up and he starts teaching. Verse 14. It's amazing to consider that when God decided to enact his mission of saving mankind in the fullness of time, in his idea of a successful mission, that for Christ, the regular way of showing incarnational ministry to God's people was to teach. It's good for us, even just early on in this message, to stop and consider Christian to apply that to ourselves. Do, Do we see being taught by the Lord in His Word as the primary way that we also are being filled up to carry out the mission of God? Do we see speaking the truth in love and teaching those whom God has placed with us as the regular way of walking and carrying out the mission that God has sent us? to do. Teaching, that is what we are called to do in so many ways, and that's not the only thing we are called to do. We'll see the posture of Jesus and His teaching. We'll see why His teaching has a particular effect. We'll unpack several things this morning, but again, teaching is the way that Jesus is accomplishing the mission of God. It's certainly what we are also sent to do. We're going to learn three truths. The the Jews are going to respond to the teaching of Jesus there's like three main questions of the fourth question at the end, but the three I want to look at I'll point out to you as we move along. Um, but, but the first one in this first section, I want you to write down, if you're taking notes, uh, that number one, the teaching of Jesus is sent from God. It is actually from God. But here's the kicker, apart from faith, man cannot know it. We'll see kind of two-part uh, sentences throughout these three sections uh, of truths like that. And this first one is simple. It's a, Jesus' teaching is sent from God. But apart from faith, man cannot know it. Now, we don't know exactly what Jesus taught. We don't have a longer passage of, okay, here's what he read, here's what he said, those kind of things. But we can pick up a lot from the context of this passage that we see, the, the culture, the feast itself, and especially how the Jews respond to Jesus' teaching that gives us some clues. And the first thing's in verse 15 that we see that Jesus is teaching with authority. Jesus is teaching with authority. Look, look at it with me there. Uh, the Jews therefore marveled. They were astonished. They were amazed at His teaching. It was impressive to them in some form or fashion. And, and they said, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? They're, they're amazed by this. This is not something new to us if we know our Bibles well. Throughout all four Gospels, Jesus' teaching is said as having authority. Mark 1.22 is one, a good example of this. Mark 1, verse 22 says, "...the people were astonished at His teaching, for He taught them as one who had authority." and not as the scribes. That gives us a clue in, okay, why did the Jews marvel in verse 15? There's this authority to what Jesus is saying. They understand that there's power to His teaching. They're clearly picking up on this. They're amazed. They're astonished. And and it's funny what they ask, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? It kind of makes me think of If you've ever, um, whether it's your favorite athlete or your favorite musician or somebody else that can do something that's really impressive, right? Sometimes we'll ask the question like, well, where, where did he learn that from? Where did she learn to sing like that? Like, you know, we ask those kind of questions, So we love shows like American Idol and stuff like that, because you, you want to know the backstory. How did this person come to, to get this great talent? And they're, they're asking a similar kind of question. I think it's a little bit more offensive than that, but they're they're asking essentially, yeah, where, where does this authority come from? Uh, and, and clearly, we're going to learn, well, it's from God, because you've got God teaching in your temple right now, uh, which is amazing to think about the imagery of what's happening here. Um, but if we dig into the, the wording, I think we'll, we'll see that there's a little bit more to it. It says, how is it that this man has learning? If, if you're in the ESV translation, there's a footnote. Uh, mine says, or this man knows his letters. That's a more literal translation of that idea. So are they really, is that what they're really asking? Like, how does this man know his letters, like how to talk, how to read? I mean, maybe, I don't think so. Um, but, you know, remember, uh, the, the Christ was promised to not be an impressive figure. Isaiah 53 makes that clear. He, he's not some attractive or charismatic or, or super, uh, as it were, visibly powerful figure. So maybe that's what they're responding to, but I, I think it's more than that. Um, in the Greek, the word for letters is, is grandma, not grandma, grandma, like grammar but without an R. Uh, and, and it's just talking about letter, you know, simple letters, writings, that kind of thing. But it's used in different places to also refer to the Scriptures. And in fact, John just used it to refer to the Scriptures two chapters ago, the last time Jesus was in Jerusalem, uh, verses 46 and 47. Jesus talks about the writings of Moses, the letters of Moses, the grammar of Moses. Again, same word. So I don't think they're just asking, how does Jesus know how to read? I think they're asking, how does He have such authority when teaching from the Scriptures? And specifically, in the second part of that question, when He has never studied? Again, I don't think literally, like, Jesus just all of a sudden one day thought, I'm going to teach, and just stood up and started teaching, apropos of nothing. I don't think that's what they're saying. In this rabbinical culture, there's lots of rabbis who are teaching around. They've uh, gathered followers. They have people who are following their teaching. Uh, oftentimes, in this culture, you 'd have these guys who would find their spots, they would teach for a while, and as they teach, they might begin with the scriptures, but they would quickly move to the traditional writings of other rabbis from the past they 'd quote their their kind of favorite rabbis that they are connected with in a particular school of thought. Uh, you think about the Pharisees or the Sadducees that have different theological bents right well that 's what they're saying is they're like, okay, hold up, who is this guy who knows the scriptures so so well he 's teaching with authority. And what school does he belong to? Like we have not seen him training with these other Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees and other leaders at the other feasts. That, like this is Jesus from Nazareth, like the like,, ugh, Nazareth, right? And so they, they don't understand. How is this guy, outside of their idea, of their educational systems, their source of power, how does this guy have such authoritative teaching? Uh, And the simple truth is He's teaching Scripture. Yeah, He teaches with authority, but He teaches from Scripture. Isn't that amazing? The incarnate God is using the very words of God to deliver His good news, His gospel of salvation to the people. God is so much more truthful purely and consistent and self-sufficient than we can even imagine that he even uses his own word to teach truth to us it's incredible and, and the the amazing just a just a footnote thought here I think sometimes we can think about Jesus' learning as a sort of, like, download. Like, He just kind of slept on a, a scroll overnight and then woke up and, and knew all the Scriptures, but Luke two fifty two tells us that He increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. He learned, uh, Hebrews says. He even learned from what He suffered. He learned from the difficulties of His incarnation. He learned from what was difficult about being truly 100% man. Uh, so, Jesus is giving us a, an excellent model, Christian, for us as well. Not only is, is teaching to be our call when we're sent out on mission, but to be teaching from Scripture, to be learning from Scripture, to be dedicated and rooted in God's Word and to know His Word well so we might teach from it. I think even, uh, again, a sort of uh, side application here is that he, He's teaching more from God's Word. Than from what the other traditions and ritualistic studies and other quotes of the time are focused on. Christian, may that be true of us as well, to be a people who teach the Word of God faithfully. But most of all, and I think this is what we'll see, is we'll, we'll, we'll really unpack the rest of this passage. Jesus is teaching the gospel. How do we know that? Well, we have to walk through what He actually says in response, I think, to find out. So verse 16, Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Uh, it would start like they expect, my, my teaching is not mine, but they're expecting to hear the name of their favorite rabbi or whoever they theologically agree with on this secondary tertiary issue, but they don't hear that. teaching is not mine, but him who sent me. And he'll make it very clear as he continues to talk that that is God. This is a bold claim. No one else on earth ever Can make this claim except Jesus. He is truly sent from God, and His teaching is from God. Uh, Verse 17 is very, very important for us to understand. If if anyone's will is to do His will, or God's will, He means, He will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm just speaking on my own authority. So, (laughs) I I love this. uh, A guy named Leon Morris, an Australian pastor, he says says this about this verse. In verse 15, Jesus' hearers had raised the questions of his competence as a teacher, right? They're wanting to know, okay, who's this guy who knows his letters, who knows the scriptures? Where is he studied? But Jesus, in verse 17, raises the question of their competence as hearers, and this is how he gets to it. This is how he gets to the heart of it. If anyone's will is to do God's will, then he will know whether the teaching is from God or just whether he's speaking on his own authority. This is, this is a, a monumental verse. This may not be like a, a structural beam but this is a stained-glass window in in this passage that we need to pay attention to, because what Jesus is saying here is that submission to God's will is primary as compared to our own understanding, even of good things. Let that sit with you for a moment. Are Are you okay with that? Are you okay with submitting your will to a God that you don't fully quite understand how it all lines up. You don't quite fully understand how obeying Him in this time is going to work out for the next season of life. Because that's what Jesus is saying about His teaching. What is He asking them to be willing to do? To to submit themselves to God's will. And, And just as a reminder, this has been consistent throughout the book of John. When we talk about submitting to God's will in John, we talk about believing in the Christ and that Jesus is Him. That's what that means. Uh, Just one example, for time's sake, John 6, verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. The will and the work, the doing in that verse, those things always in in in, uh, John's gospel point to belief, faith in Jesus as the Christ. So, what does that mean? How, How do we understand that? Augustine taught it like this. He said, understanding is the reward of faith. Therefore, do not seek to understand in order to believe, but believe that thou mayest understand." That's not an easy teaching. Understanding is the reward of faith. I think that's what Jesus is saying here in verse 17. And as we'll unpack the rest of this passage, I I think that it's, it's a far greater issue than just simple factual understanding of what Jesus is saying. He's saying, your problem with my teaching is not a factual one, it's a heart problem. That's where Jesus is going to go with this. He continues on, uh, verse 18, they're still not ready to believe in Him. They say, the one who speaks on His own authority seeks His own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of Him who sent Him is true, and in Him there is no falsehood. And then He goes to a particular example. He's going to mention Moses here, right, in verse 19. Let's remember that this feast. That they're celebrating is a command from the law of Moses. This feast that they're celebrating is commemorating a time when the people were following Moses in the wilderness, right? So Jesus is going to bring Moses up. He says, has not Moses given you the law? So why is he bringing Moses and the law up here? Well, again, like I already mentioned, the feast is happening. Uh, They're obeying the law, at least in, in name, um, by being at the feast, making the pilgrimage, that kind of a thing. But I think there's also a subtle connection to the person of Moses. Uh, think about, this is a verse we sometimes laugh at, you know, the, Numbers 12.3, Moses was the most humble man in all the earth, and the great Bible teachers always remind us, and Moses wrote that verse, right? I, I, that, but it's, there's something to that verse and to the life of Moses that points out a particular humility, a particular, as we just saw Jesus explain in verse 18, one who doesn't seek his own glory but seeks God's glory. You remember, church, years ago, we were walking through the book of Exodus, in Exodus 33 and 34, when there was so much turmoil in in the people sinning against God and and what was going to happen next. What did Moses ask to see? What was he seeking? It wasn't his own glory. It was God's glory. Asked in, in Exodus 33, Lord, just let me see your glory. What does God do? He hides him in the cleft of a rock. We just see just the, just the back of God as he passes, as it were, just a glimpse. And then God reveals who he is so that Moses might know him and declare him to the people. Jesus, even more than Moses, has seen the glory of God because he is the glory of God incarnate, and he's making it known to the people. And he's using Moses as an example here so that we'll understand that even when given the truth, we don't obey it. Even when God speaks to us what is true, we refuse ultimately to follow Him. So, point number two, if you're taking notes again this morning, in verses 20 through 24, see that the law of Moses reveals sin and points to Jesus. Apart from faith, man cannot keep it. This is what Jesus is doing in this. the pivot to this next section. We're going to get another question from them. Has not Moses given you the law? What's his point? Yet none of you keeps it. And then he's going to give an example before they even have What, what do you mean we're not keeping it? Jesus, we're here to worship. We're, we're obeying the law of Moses. We're at the Feast of Booths. No. Why do you seek to kill me? That's that's an amazing moment in this passage. He he just cuts right through it. If if you, just later on in in your own personal study, if you watch the flow from verse uh, 16 to 19, and where Jesus starts and where he ends up, it's incredible. He says, why do you seek to kill me? There are Jews in Jerusalem, we already know, who have been looking to put Jesus to death. We've seen that in past chapters and moments in John. John 7, 1, the very beginning of this chapter, he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Why are they seeking to kill him? Well, if you want to flip back over to John 5, the last time Jesus was in Jerusalem at a feast, look at verse 18, John five eighteen. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath when he healed a guy on the Sabbath, But he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus did a work that didn't line up with their understanding of the ritual obedience to the Sabbath, and now he's calling himself equal with God. So, the authorities are looking to kill Jesus. Let's not overcomplicate things here. Verse 19, what is Jesus saying? What's your evidence that you're not keeping the law? Well, you want to murder me. That's not what Moses commanded you to do. That's commandment number six, right? I always remember that because of the hand motions, yeah? Look, Jesus is trying to spell it out plain for them. You want to kill me. You want to murder. And yet you're claiming as if you're an authority on the teaching of God and on the law. You're not an authority on the teaching of of God. You're not not able to even keep the law of God. The crowd has changed quick. Verse 20, it says that they answer, You have a demon who is seeking to kill you. (laughs) They, they go from marveling that he was teaching. Oh, wow, this guy has authority. I wonder where he's studying. Oh, actually, he has a demon. Never mind. Right? I mean, it's just such a good example of our own human hearts and our own flesh and our own strength. We vacillate from one thing to the other based on how it looks to us. And Jesus and God's teaching, what, he, what we see in this passage, it cuts straight through that. We see the truth cutting through. <laughs> you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Romans 2 is a really good, I think, uh, description of what's happening here. In Romans 2, verse 17, I'll read from there to 24, Paul writes, and he's, he's sort of breaking down the, the breaking of the law among the peoples of the world. The whole world, the Jews, even the pagans, any, anybody and everybody has broken God's law. But in verse 17 of Romans chapter 2, he, he, he says specifically, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and you boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, I think the people here in this crowd would say yes and amen to all those things, and if you're assured that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor, a teacher of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Romans 2.21, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Do you not teach yourself of what God's Word has said, and yet you haven't done those things? could read on to verse 24. He begins to unpack this. Paul begins to to work on the hearts of, of his Jewish audience. He'll go on from there to make it very, very clear that every single human being however much we think we can understand God's truth or even a glimpse of it, we cannot keep it on our own. We cannot obey it. Friends, we don't have the strength. We we don't have the humility of God Himself. We are not love incarnate. We are not truth incarnate. We are a temporary being in the flesh of this world, an eternal being that God has made and purposed for His glory. And yet with the little time and flesh that we're given, we seek our own wills so often. We don't submit to God's will. And even when we think we know part of it, we're just like the Jews here. We marvel at it first, and we antagonize it in the next moment, seeking to kill the one who came to save them. But thanks be to God that inverts. Twenty of Romans chapter three, Paul finishes his train of thought that I began in that last reading it says Romans three twenty for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes just knowledge of sin, awareness of sin, but now Verse 21, the righteousness of God, Jesus Christ, has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, those who believe, by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And check this out. How does God do that? Verse 25 of Romans 3, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This is the… I love this part of this text, to see the glory of God at work in ways that we cannot fathom, in ways that they certainly didn't understand. The ones who are saying, who's seeking to kill you are going to come back to Jerusalem for the next feast six months later and say, crucify Him. They will be ready for His blood. But before the foundation of the world, that blood was intended and purposed by God to be shed so that you who would believe in Him, even though you can't keep God's law, would know Him, would know Him and then be able to begin to understand His teaching and to walk in it. You see that? You see how God works beyond what we can fathom most of all in Christ in this passage? Christian, is that the gospel that you've believed? Let's search our own hearts. May it not be a gospel, quote-unquote, a false gospel of our own understanding, our own truths, our own trying to keep after some sense of of law or or duty or ritual or anything like that, but first that we cannot keep it. And yet Christ died for us. He paid the penalty for the punishment of our own law-breaking so that we might be reconciled to God through Him and walk in Him. That's the good news of the gospel. But sadly, that's not how this crowd responds, at least not here. So Jesus goes on to explain to them how He has kept the law and how really the law points to Him. Let me read verse 21 through 24 for us back in John 7. Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. That's that work we talked about just a bit ago in John 5. he was last time at the feast in Jerusalem, healed a man on the Sabbath. That was the uh, lame man at the pool of Siloam, right? They were upset at him for healing, making his whole body well, as Jesus says later in this passage, on the Sabbath, right? But, But Jesus says, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Verse 22, Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. I love that. It's like there's a Bible nerd in the back who's about to say, like, ah, now Genesis 17. It's that Jesus is on top of it. Not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. What is he talking about? What's going on here? Well, in the law, again, you're not supposed to do work on the Sabbath. You're supposed to keep it holy as God is holy. You're supposed to remember God's uh, Sabbath in the, in the time of creation, on the seventh day he rests. You're not supposed to do work, but if there's a baby boy in Israel who's born in such a time where he needs to be circumcised on the Sabbath to keep the law of Moses, he's saying, you circumcise him. You do that work. You observe the law in that context. And yet, over these many years, there have been rituals and legalism and and all this stuff that's been added to God's law now that there's all these different understandings of how to keep Sabbath. and You can't do this, and you can't do that. And so Jesus is trying to say, look, this is ridiculous. If you can circumcise a man so he's not cut off from Israel, so he's not uh, disassociated with the people of God, how much more can I make a whole man's body well? That's what he says in verse 23. Look at it. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? What may seem a little bit more confusing to us in this text is very clear to them, let me assure you. That's, that's why Jesus can say such a strong statement in verse 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. He's just saying, look guys, be reasonable here. What does the law say, and what did I do? Jesus is not a lawbreaker. Jesus is the perfect law keeper because the law points to him. The law of Moses points to the one who will be able to keep the law, who will be able to save God's people, the true Messiah, the true Christ. But they, if they're convinced of these verses about that issue on the Sabbath, which I think they might be, they're definitely not convinced that Jesus is that Christ. So I think beyond verse 24, Jesus is not just saying simply, understand the law. I think that's partly what He's saying here in context. But He's even hearkening back to their original question in 15, where they just look at Him, and they hear Him, and they make an assumption. But Jesus says, don't judge by appearances. Judge with right judgment. Christian, may may we be marked with that kind of directive. Because if we believed in Christ, we do know God's teaching. We know the gospel. We, we As we grow in wisdom and stature, like John 2.52 said, we, we know God's Word more and more, and God, through His Spirit, as we'll talk about next week, gives us the strength and the help to apply it, to walk in it. So we, above anybody else— should be the ones who judge with right judgment, not judging based on appearances. Here he's talking about that theologically speaking, right? We certainly need to to read our Bibles. We need to be good Bereans, as Acts says, those who search the Scriptures know what the truth is. Again, not to earn faith, not to get closer to God, but we have come in faith, and so we learn. So, Christian… Do not judge on appearances. Judge with right judgment. Use your Bibles well. This is a confusing era and culture to live in. And it'd be easy to argue that I think every era is for God's people, but we know our own particular confusions. We know the lies that are out there, we know the the things that, that get confusing and confuse other people about the gospel and about Christ. Know God's Word. Know how the Old Testament specifically points to Jesus Christ. Make that your aim so that you also can judge, not based on the appearance of things, the appearance of what sounds right, sounds good, but what is right judgment based on what God has said, not our own ideas, not our own merits. We want to judge with right judgment. After Jesus teaches this... um, very interesting to see. Like I hinted at earlier, it seems like they they might be satisfied with that answer, the legal answer, at at least, with the healing on the Sabbath issue. They're like, maybe they're like, okay, I kind of get what he's saying. Because look in verse 25, it says, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly. Note back in verse 4, brothers wanted to be known openly. What is he doing? Speaking openly, teaching. And they say nothing to him. The authorities aren't doing anything about it. Presumably there's some in the crowd here that are listening. They're a little uneasy. They're hearing how Jesus is, is teaching with authority. They're hearing this explanation about Moses and his law on the Sabbath and that kind of stuff. And they're like, it eh, kind of adds up. I kind of get that. Maybe that's what's happening here. Because they ask, can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Right? Maybe the authorities are changing their mind. We've been hearing the past several days of this feast that there's some guy named Jesus of Nazareth who's been doing signs, garnering a following, and the, the leaders are going to arrest him. They want to kill him. But now he's teaching openly? He's even responding to questions and explaining, and they're not doing anything. Could it be that the, he's the Christ? But they have their own confusion, this, this crowd. Verse 27 says, But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. It's, it's really sad here to see how, going back to what verse 17, what Jesus was teaching us there, how we get caught up in these confusions. We get caught up in, in trying to understand certain things in our own strength. And we don't trust God as a father. We, we don't desire to know Him, but we put our own understanding of truth in the way. And I think this is a good moment, an example of this, because they have this idea that when the Christ appears, no one will know where He comes from. Now, you can go look at Malachi 3 later. I think there's a good reason for them to be thinking of something like this. Malachi prophesies that suddenly the Lord will come into His temple in power, so, there, there's some thought there behind it. It's, it's not absent from thinking in terms of Scripture that has been written. The problem is, if they really knew God's Word, they would know that this is the Christ. This is the one who has come to save Him. This is the one, again, who just told them, my teaching's not mine, it's Him who sent me. But the problem is, is not an issue of fact. I I don't think it's just that they don't know Micah 5-2 or something like that, as we'll look at next week where they talk about does he come from Bethlehem, Galilee, what's going on here. Their issue is an issue of the heart. So our final point this morning, point number three, last section of the text, we learn very clearly that Jesus is the Christ sent from God. And again, apart from faith, man cannot know him apart from faith. Let, let's, let's read how that unpacks here. Verse 28, so Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple. I, I love, um, there's a, uh, let's see, Eugene Peterson's, uh, the message, his section here, it says that provoked Jesus, who was teaching in the temple, to cry out. Cry out is the, is the verb that's happening here and proclaimed. So, this is, this is an impassioned declaration. He says, you know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. I've not come of myself, literally. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. This, I feel like this is where the weight of the the trajectory of this whole text lands right there. You don't know God. How tragic is that? That those who say that they've come to worship Yahweh, to worship God in Jerusalem, in His city, to worship at His temple, to observe His feast, have His prince right in front of them, and have totally cast Him off. saying, wow, where does this guy come from, really? Like, again, isn't this Jesus of Nazareth? They know this dude. They know his family. Isn't he supposed to come suddenly out of nowhere, be more impressive looking, be in this, you know, educational stream, a result of this study of rabbis or this school over here? But God did not send a visually impressive figure to save the world through impressive feats of strength. He came to this earth as a baby to grow up in the wisdom and stature of His own Word, wrapping on the very flesh He Himself created, and then die so that you and I would not have our sins counted against us, but He would take on that punishment. It is that God who defeats death forever in the resurrection. Not an impressive other teacher, not an impressive superhero savior, not an impressive other design or strategy. This is the gospel, and the gospel is given so that we might know God. And we cannot know God, friend, unless we have put our faith in Christ. That is the crucial, crucial message of this passage. We are indicted as much as they are before Christ without faith as being those who do not know God. And, and if you think back to Romans again, you think back to chapter 1, there are many evidences for that, that we On our own, mankind do not know God, but Christ came to save us. And it's so sad to see here the response. When they hear him say, you don't know God, verse 30, so they were seeking to arrest him. They still don't believe, especially these Jewish religious authorities. They still don't believe. But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. God was in control in this situation and throughout the life of Jesus to bring salvation in his timing and in his way. Jesus would not shed a drop of blood before it was God's time. That's how in control of the salvation that God has given you, Christian, he is. That's that's how much we can trust, even when we don't understand all the particulars, even if we've forgotten that one verse reference. Look, the, the amazing thing about Jesus' response here to, to their, their statement in verse 27, it, he, doesn't, he doesn't start looking at different verses and things like that, and He could have, And there are times, Christian, where it's good for us to go through and search the Scriptures and and to judge with right judgment. But again, we must do so in the right order. We must do so in the right heart. And the right heart, Jesus says, is one who knows God. And those who know God are those who have put their faith in Him. Faith with the desire to know God must be put above our own desire to have our own understanding. It must be, even in the hardest situations. But these, these Jews, sadly, they, they're not seeking that. They're, they're seeking to arrest him. They're wanting to kill him. You see in verse 31 that many of the people do believe that's a good thing, uh, and I wish I could stop there, but the reality is we're going to keep going on in John 7. We'll keep going on in John 8. We'll see that Jesus will continue to dig into their hearts, and even those who follow Him for a time, like in John 6, will fall away. Even those who believe in Him for a time, like that short plant in the rocky, like, uh, unfertile soil gets withered away by the sun gets destroyed. And, and so I, I think in many ways this passage, even, even the yet many of the people believed in him, and they, they're focusing back on his signs. Well, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? I, I think this is still a sobering end where we see really from here on out that the Jews will seek to arrest Jesus in a new way. They're going to send officers even to arrest him, what well, we'll look at next week. The, the, the tension is ramping up in the Gospel of John as we head towards the crucifixion because of what Jesus is teaching here. So if there's any takeaway I have for you, if you're here this morning and you know a lot of things about God's Word, or you know a few, and you have some confusion still, that's okay. We're, we're man, not God. We don't know everything. Our, our knowledge is finite. We have to learn. The the problem is not the confusions. The the problem is not the lack of understanding. Friend, the problem is the lack of faith in Jesus. And Jesus came and he taught the people, not so that they would know more stuff about him, but so that they would put their faith in him. J.I. Packer, who wrote that great book, Knowing God, is a great quote here a little knowledge of God, a little knowledge of God is worth more than a great deal of knowledge about Him. That is so true, and it's so true in this passage. It's so truly clear to us that our desire for our own knowledge so often gets in the way of our need to know God and to put our faith and trust in Him. So, friend, would you put your faith and trust in Christ if you have not? Don't aim to get at God by your own merits or your own understanding. God has come to you in Christ. He died on the cross, rose again from the grave, so that you might have life in Him. Believe. Believe in Him. Christian, teach others this gospel. It's it's okay for it to feel a little unimpressive. It's okay for it to feel like you're saying the same things, how you're pointing back to Jesus over and over, that you're seeing in your family or your workplace or your neighborhood as the Jesus person that just won't stop talking about Jesus. Well, look, there, there is no other hope. The greatest problem in our world is not that people don't understand what you understand, that they're not smart enough to figure out what you figured out, The problem is that they don't know God. They're lost, and they need a Savior. And you're not that Savior, but you have been sent to share the good news of that Savior with them. Church, might we do that faithfully, even today, even this week, to teach of the one who came so that we, even as sinners, through faith might know God and know his teaching well. Let's pray together. Father, I confess, even when I think about wrestling with the truth in this text this week, there's so many ways I know I have tried to live based on my own understanding, God. God, there's so many ways where I delay walking forward in faith and in trusting in you because I don't understand, or I want to understand more. I want to know all the particulars. But God, I, I ask that you would help even as you've helped me this week, you would help all of us to be able to know you through faith. Help us to understand who you are in Christ. And understand that and that alone, perhaps. That we might set aside the other things that we are chasing after and know you. Christ, thank you for teaching faithfully. Thank you for being one who taught with authority, who taught from the Scriptures, and, but who ultimately taught the gospel even when that divided the people in front of you. You taught faithfully. Help us, Spirit, to take on that ministry that you have given us, even as Christ was sent into the world with God's teaching. Help us to be sent with this same good news, God, that you have come down to save. You want a people who know you deeply, so that they might be loved by you, reconciled to you through faith, and walk in righteousness. God, would you do that among your people in your church this week, this summer? Help us to grow in a knowledge of your word, to grow in understanding, but only out of faith. Help us to be a people of this faith that know you well. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.